Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. So all summer long, we've been talking about being refreshed by God's Spirit, and we've been studying the book of Psalms, the poetry of the Old Testament, seeing how God pours out his refreshment on his people. But as we've done this, one of the things that we've started to notice kind of as a congregation, and I've talked about it with different groups, with leaders and with bands and different people, is that oftentimes God seems to refresh us in ways that we don't expect. Because we go to God, and our prayers at times can be very specific. And by the way, that's good. It's a good thing to go to God with very specific prayers. In fact, you can speak very plainly to God. You'll see in the Psalms, the authors will cry out. They will be very specific, even harsh, and they will demand that God refresh them. And so we can do the same. And so we'll pray to God and we'll say, God, would you refresh me? This is what I'm going through, and this is the best way that you can refresh me. And oftentimes we'll be praying for rest, we'll be praying for being recharged, we'll pray for renewal, sometimes we'll we'll pray for kind of a withdrawal. And this is the way that we often seek to be refreshed. But so often we're seeing that God chooses other ways to refresh us instead, and they often surprise us. It seems like a lot of these psalms have a, a, a sudden unexpected twist in the middle Or at the end, the psalm will read something like, uh, I'm under distress, my enemies have attacked me, Uh, I don't know what to do, and yet I will praise. Or it will be, God, I've been losing, 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 yet I know in you I win. But I guess at some point, if we're consistently seeing an unexpected ending, it becomes the expected ending, right? I mean, you fool me once, but fool me twice. We're starting to get it. God regularly refreshes us in ways that we don't expect, and they kind of take a sudden turn. And I think we'll see that again today. We're going to study a psalm. It's one of the later ones. It's Psalm 132. And so I would ask that you would turn to that text, whether you brought a print Bible, whether you're on a device there at home. And I want you to turn to Psalm 132 because I want you to have the text in front of you. We're going to study all 18 verses of the psalm, and I think if you don't have your own version there, uh, it can be a little hard to follow. It's also harder to see how the poetry kind of relates together one piece to another. And also, I'll be as honest with you as I can. I'm hoping that by opening your Bible today and using it, that you'll be even more likely to open it tomorrow and use it in the day after that because you're sort of in the groove. Besides, as a person who comes to church... You should never sit under the teaching of someone who isn't using the scripture. That should be your standard. And so as a listener, let's apply the same standard and say, I'm going to have my scripture available to me as I listen, as we all examine this word together. Now, Psalm 132 is part of a collection of psalms that starts from 120 to 134. There's 15 in total. They're called the songs of ascent, as in going up. 
And oftentimes in the Psalms, we kind of ignore these, these superscripts. We're not even sure what they all mean. Some of them seem like there's some sort of a dance. Some of them seem like they're a musical cadence of some sort. Some are ascribed to holidays. And many of them, we just don't know what they mean. But this one, we know exactly what it means. The Psalms of Ascent, the songs, are 15 psalms that were collected together, and they were used by the faithful community when they would travel back to Jerusalem for the major religious festivals. Okay? We're talking, um, you know, Passover. We're talking Yom Kippur, depending on when you are in the history of Israel. The major religious festivals, they had a practice that was uh, taught to them by the Old Testament of pilgrimage, where the faithful, the pilgrims, would travel back to the temple, and they would reflect on these 15 psalms during their journey. They would sing them, they would chant them, they would talk about them, and it was how they prepared their hearts for worship when they would arrive at the temple for this major, you know, religious festival, whichever one it was. And Psalm 132 is the longest of these 15 and probably the most important because the last two that follow are very short. They just mention unity, they mention praise, and that's it. So this is sort of the height of the songs of ascent. No pun intended, but it is the height of the ascent. Anyway, so let's read these first five verses, you and I. Verse 1, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. And we can already tell this psalm is not written by David because it's talking about David as a historical figure. This one is a little bit later, and there's no author given in the text. I have a theory, though, and this theory is backed up by a lot of scholars. I think it's probably written by Solomon, David's son, for a couple of reasons. It's Solomon's involvement with the temple that we're going to talk about, and it also shares language with one of Solomon's prayers that's in Second Chronicles when they dedicate it to the temple. Remember, the audience of this was God's faithful people, the Israelites, who knew David's story, who knew the history of Israel. And it starts with a sentence that can be a little bit surprising. It says, Lord, remember David. And we kind of talked about this last week when Robert was teaching. But just to review, uh, the author isn't saying, hey, God, I'm concerned that you forgot about David. There's not a statement of saying, excuse me, excuse me, remember David? I think you've totally forgotten him. No, no, no. This is actually covenant language. The author is saying more like, let's turn our attention now to David. Let's focus on your covenant son, David. Or more like, God, take care of David, which is an interesting connotation because David is already dead. But the author is saying, God, take care of David, a man who we're looking back on in history. What does he mean by that? It says, remember David's self-denial. Now, if you're familiar with the story of King David's life, it was very complex. We have his pretty much his whole life from beginning to end is in the scriptures from when he was probably a teenager all the way up until when he died. But specifically, this psalm is talking in these first five verses about a desire that David had on his heart. David had been the second king of Israel, but he was the first one to finish conquering all the neighboring nations, the first one to reign in peace. And so as part of that, he built himself a palace and he selected a capital city, 
Jerusalem, also called Zion, consistently throughout the scriptures. And then David had this burden. He had this vision. He had this idea. He said, we have finished conquering the region. Israel is now God's. We have a capital city. The king has a palace. God should have a temple. David felt very strongly that this was the next step in the growth of this nation. If God is going to come first, he needs to move out of the tent and into a palace, into his own royal palace. If the king has one, God should have one, and it should be even better than the king's. And David felt very strongly about this. So first David talked to a prophet named Nathan. David said, I want to build a temple for God. Nathan said, cool. Nathan went back and prayed, and God said to Nathan, it's actually not what I want. So Nathan the prophet had to come back to the king and have a very difficult conversation. Now, if you're familiar with the prophet Nathan, he was pretty good at this, having difficult conversations with King David, and he did it again. So he went and he said, David, you want to build a temple, but God is saying no. Because the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You just conquered these nations. You are the king who committed bloodshed. They're not going to come and worship in your temple. It can't be you. David was frustrated by this. I believe, and the text seems to indicate that this was going to be the height of his accomplishment as a king. He wanted to build the temple for God. And God said no. So that was his self-denial. It's not very often that a king doesn't get to do what he wants to do, but he was willing to restrict himself to say, God had told me not to build this house, so I won't. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? You're pursuing something that you are convinced is God's way. You're pursuing something that you know is right and good. And for some reason, God says, this is not what I want you to do. Or maybe God doesn't speak to you audibly, but you're pursuing this mission, this idea, this vision, and it just simply won't work. It doesn't go, and you're not sure why. What is your response in those situations? When you're frustrated by that, the inability to accomplish the mission that's in front of you that you know to be right, how do you seek to be refreshed? Because David did a very interesting thing. He didn't argue with the prophet. In fact, David spent the rest of his life as one of his main goals and accomplishments preparing for the temple to be built. And the text talks about how he gathered the construction materials that were going to be necessary, many of which had to be imported from different parts of the world. He built up the treasury. He started to recruit the craftsmen. He did everything necessary to build the temple, but he didn't get to build the temple. I think David quite clearly took a strategy that he said, even though I've been denied in that which I want, I will continue to be persistent in praise. Because in the scriptures, the word for worship and praise and the word for serve, they're the same word. It's the, the activity of focusing our hearts, our minds, our, our body, soul, our strength, all in to God. So David did not withdraw. He didn't stop. He said that I'm going to continue to pursue this mission in exactly the way that I can and exactly the way that God allows me. I will persist so that I can make preparation 
that this temple can be built someday by another king. All right, so the psalm goes on. It starts talking in verse 6. It says, We heard it at Ephrathah. We came upon it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. This is a little bit hard to follow, I think, but on the original audience, they knew exactly what this poem was about because the poem just instantly changed subjects. It was no longer talking about David's denial from having to build the temple. It was talking about the Ark of the Covenant. You might be familiar with the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones, right? I've spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out where the Ark is, by the way. I couldn't find it. I wanted to get a newer picture, but this was the best I could find for now. So the Ark of the Covenant was the major religious icon of their day. It was the physical, visible representation of the presence of God. The Ten Commandments were inside, and God's presence dwelled between the cherubim. It had to be handled very, very carefully in ways that were prescribed at great length in the Old Testament. Now, what had happened was when Saul, the first king, uh, was fighting a war, Israel decided to kind of weaponize the ark, and they brought it out to a battle that they were never supposed to fight, and the ark got captured, and they were heart broken. And people died of just a broken heart on that day. And the ark was taken by a people group called the Philistines. Well, while the Philistines had it, a lot of funny things happened. We don't have time to go into it. But when they had God's ark, nothing good happened. Uh, Nothing good happened to their statues. Nothing good happened to the men who were around. It was all kinds of craziness. And so the Philistines, uh, especially the men, said, what this thing is doing to our bodies, we cannot withstand. It has to go. So the Philistines sent it back. They just literally returned it. They said, we don't need this. They put it on a cart. They they kind of slapped the oxen and said, just go that way. And they were done with this ark. The ark came back, and about nine miles away from Jerusalem, Israel wasn't really sure what to do because they had lost it by being foolish. And then it just came wandering home, this ark. So they just put it in someone's house. And it was there for 20 years. They really didn't know what to do. By the way, God blessed this covenant household who was watching over the ark. All right, so then King David said the ark of the covenant should be in the capital city. It should be in the royal city. We're going to bring it back. So King David had this big idea. They built a brand new cart, and they put the ark on the cart, and it was going to be drawn by oxen. And they had a a worship parade, really, honestly. It was a major spectacle. The text says that all of Israel came out. I mean, it was a huge deal. They were worshiping, and they were singing, and they thought it was going to be a day of great celebration. But they had made a serious mistake. Because God was very clear that the ark was supposed to be carried by priests with wooden poles. And instead, they had put it on a cart that was behind oxen. Not only is this disrespectful to the ark, it's simply not a good idea because if you've ever seen the horses in a parade, you know what happens to the ground behind the horses in the parade. It's not pretty, quite literally. This is where they had the ark. And there was a moment when the ox stumbled, the ark wobbled, and there was a man named Utzah 
who steadied the ark. He thought this is a good thing. It was not a good thing. No one was allowed to touch the ark. And the man was struck dead right there in front of everyone. So they all panicked, the king included. He's like, I don't know what to do. We were trying to do a good thing here. I thought we had a good plan. Someone just died in front of everyone. God is obviously not behind this. They stopped and they put the ark away. Have you ever found yourself in that situation where you started out, you were doing something that you thought God would want you to do, but it crashed and burned and it went horribly wrong and at some point you realized, this was me. I did this. I did a terrible thing. What did David do? David had an incredible response. They took three months to, to regroup and to, to think about this again. And then the text is clear. The next time the priests carry the ark with the poles and they had even more celebration, even more Worship. The text said they would only take a few steps, they would stop and worship again. They would take a couple more steps, they would stop and worship again. David himself, personally and individually, he worshiped and danced harder and louder and longer in his life than he ever had before to the point that his own wife was embarrassed at the spectacle of his worship. I don't know if I would have done that. I think if I tried to move the ark once and everyone saw it and it crashed and burned, I really think I would have tried to sneak it into a side door during the night. David didn't do that. He again persisted in his praise. He came back. He said, that was my fault. We did it horribly wrong. But this time we're going to do it right. We're going to worship more. We're going to worship harder. We're going to go all in. Because the refreshment that he saw wasn't through withdrawing it. It wasn't through stopping. It was always through persisting in his praise. It was always through digging in more and saying, God, I'm going to continue to pursue you because I know that you are going to meet me there. And in fact, this half of the psalm ends with this beautiful prayer that says, Arise, Lord, come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. Talking about a beautiful, perfect life with God. And when he's talking about God being at rest, this doesn't mean God is now finished. The opposite of this word rest is unrest. So they're saying God brings stability, strength, peace, and power. That when God rests, everything is ordered and proper and right. This year, I think, has been nothing but unrest from beginning to, well, I can't say end, but I'm not a prophet. But I'm guessing from beginning to end, this year is going to be nothing but unrest. But instead, he says, no, this is how we see rest, when we persist in praise. And this feels like the end of a great psalm. But the next line says, verse 10, for the sake of your servant, David, do not reject your anointed one. If this sounds like a lot like verse one, it is. It's very similar. It has the same idea. It says, by the way, we're going to continue talking about your servant, David. Do not reject 
your anointed one. So what's happening here? Well, this is poetry. And the fact that we just came in a circle and came back where we started, this is not a mistake. This is not someone who forgot what they were saying and decided to start over. It's intentional. This poetry has been crafted to say, we're coming back around and we're going to look at this same idea from a different perspective. And there's going to be parallelism now that flows from the first half into the second half intentionally. Okay? Verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David. Remember, it was David who swore an oath before. Now the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. And this is where we're starting to see that the second time around this circle is all the same but altogether different because it started with David saying, I promise to build you a house. God saying, I don't need you to build me a house. And now on the second time, God says to David, I'm going to build your house. It's, it's a tremendously heavy statement. And remember, I think this was written by Solomon, the living, breathing answer to this prayer. Because Solomon, the king, is from the house of David. And God said, you don't need to build my house. I've been in a tent all along and it suits me just fine. I am instead going to build your house. Now, why would God say that? Now, the reason that God kind of had his hand on the house of David. Well, first of all, he's God. He can just decide that's what he wants to do. But God is already teaching us, understanding, just kind of theologically speaking, that God is on and in and with his people. And so when he says, I will build your house, he's not talking just about David personally, but he's talking about David's descendants, all who would follow him, all who would be in his line, starting with Solomon and down through their sons and through their family. And he was saying that I will be with your house forever and ever. And in verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation. And her faithful people will ever sing for joy. God is saying, I'm going to stay in this city with these people forever and ever. Our world will be perfect and just. The poor will have food. All who follow God will have salvation. And the faithful people will continue to sing for joy. God is saying, I have chosen you as my people and I will have my blessing upon you as my representative on your king and his sons as long as they follow me perfectly. It's a beautiful picture of a perfect world. David said, I'm going to build God a house, and that's going to lead to perfection with God. And God said, no, no, no. I'm going to build David's house. That is what is going to lead to perfection with God. And I think for the original audience, that's where this psalm ended. They had the last two verses, but emotionally, that's how they understood it. Because remember, they would reflect on this psalm on their way to the temple, which did get built by Solomon. 
And they would remember that, wow, God did both of these things. He allowed Solomon to build God's house because God was building David's house. And because we persisted in praise as a nation, we saw God's blessing in our king and in our temple. And the people would remind themselves of God's great blessing every time they would arrive to praise together. And so for us as a church, we ask ourselves, how often do we ask for the refreshment of God, but we don't pursue him in worship? Have you been persistent in your praise this year? I don't know about you. This has been the hardest year I've ever had at being persistent in my praise. I mean, all of the ways that I used to do it got totally messed up. My entire life, my routine was gather with the church on Sunday and worship. And now for almost 25 years, my routine has been gather on Sunday and lead God's people in worship. And all of a sudden, that was totally different, like I had never experienced before. I mean, dramatically different. And I had to ask myself, how am I going to continue to persist in praise when it's like nothing I've ever experienced before? Serving as God's people is different than we've ever seen. Our church has hundreds of people on dozens of teams working to serve the world. And every single one of those teams just went under major disruption. So many of them were not sure how to do what we used to do. We're not sure who's going to do what we used to do. We're not sure how it's all going to work together. We're not sure how we're going to persist in praise through our service because we're not understanding yet how we can continue to do that. How do we take the old ideas, the old models, and translate them into this new normal, this new abnormal? It's much more difficult to persist in the praise of our service than it's ever been before. How do we persist in the praise of growing as disciples? You know, we've been meeting together in, in groups, small groups and larger groups for years and years and years. And suddenly those groups are disrupted and some of them are digital and some of them are on hold and some of them are in person. And it's all so different. How do we continue to persist in that praise? How do we remind ourselves of the blessing of God every time we arrive back at the temple so that we look at him with great expectation, looking forward that God will do something spectacular in our hearts because of the way that he has committed to build his house in us? We have to find ways to be persistent in our praise. And that's why for us, we can understand the end of this psalm in a way that the original audience didn't quite grasp yet because suddenly there's a prophetic word that's spoken. Verse 17 says, Here I will make a horn grow for David. A horn is a, this is poetry, remember, it's not literal. There's no unicorn coming, okay? This is poetry. Here I will make a horn, symbol of great strength and power. Think of a bull. I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with a radiant crown. There's incredible imagery happening here. This word in verse 17 for anointed one in Hebrew, that word is Mashiach. We say Messiah. He's saying, my anointed one from the house of David. He will have infinite strength and power. Because if you remember, the text said, as long as the sons of David follow me perfectly, I will be in them and I will build them. Well, the sons of David did not follow 
God perfectly. You probably know this, but there's no king in Israel today. This, this ended a long time ago. They have a prime minister, they have a cabinet, the whole deal. It's very different. So you can say, well, God didn't invest in the house of David. But we understand from the perspective of Christ that he is the realization of the line of David. If you read the New Testament, the very first chapter of the very first book, Matthew 1, starting at verse 1, all it does is trace the line from David to Jesus because we must understand that God held to this promise. He said, I will be in my people through the line of David. And who is this lamp? Who is this light? Well, at the very end of the Bible, we're reminded the city, this is Jerusalem, the same city we've been talking about all day. It does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God lights it up and its lamp is the Lamb. And so Psalm 132 has led us all the way to the feet of Christ, who is the one wearing the radiant crown, who is the one who is the light of the world, who is the one that is the city on the hill that cannot be hidden. Because as we persist in praise, we will continually find ourselves back at the foot of Christ. And so for you and I, as we kind of continue to grapple with what does it look like to be a person of great faith and conviction in 2020, when all of our old routines have been disrupted to say the least, it's about breaking it down quite simply and reminding ourselves that we constantly, consistently sit at feet of Christ. We have an opportunity coming ahead of us in about two weeks. Every single one of us who has any connection to the school, September is actually our new year. Forget January. This is when the new year starts right now. We're going to have new routines. We're going to have new habits. We're going to have new patterns, probably brand new ones that we've never had before in our entire life. We must make sure that persistency in our praise is at the core of our being. That is where we find the refreshment that we have in our Savior. So I'm going to ask you to stand right now because in just a second, we're going to have a closing song. And the, the idea behind this closing song is very simple. Go ahead, you can stand. The idea behind our closing song is very simple. It talks about being drawn back to the altar, being drawn back into that personal quiet moment with the person of Christ. Because as we come, as we lay both our dreams and our burdens at the feet of Christ who wears the radiant crown, it's in him that we find that refreshment that we so badly need in this world.